The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Myra Maker, PhD, licensed clinical psychologist, and author of Where Did My Friends Go? Helping Children Cope with a Traumatic Death. Since the tragic shooting at Sandy Hook in 2012, there have been over 160 school shootings in the United States. Firearm homicide is the second leading cause of death for young people ages 1 to 19. Trauma expert Dr. Maker offers a -a one-of-a-kind therapeutic children's picture book specifically designed to help children work through the traumatic loss of friends, loved ones, and community members. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Dr. Maker. Thank you. So this, where did my friends go? helping children cope with a traumatic death. Um, I guess the question is, my first question is, uh, why did you write the book? Why did you write it now? Um, Are there more catastrophic kinds of traumatic deaths that children are dealing with today as opposed to, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago? Or are we just beginning to recognize um, uh, what happens when children do have to cope with it could be a car accident as you say a terrorist it, it could be um homicides it could be a lot of different kinds of things we just but the aftermath of all that emotionally for the kids uh, is something that we haven't been dealing with i assume correct but i think there are two parts to this i actually wrote this book when the night of sandy hook and i realized this is this is something new these children are going to need help Um, And then I put the book away thinking, surely this problem will go away. We will address it as a country, and this won't happen again. And unfortunately, that wasn't the case. So about two years ago, I picked up the book again and uh, started working on it again. And I I think there is an increase in the trauma that children are being exposed to, the, the gun violence on school campuses, college campuses, the increase in terrorist attacks. I mean, look at what's happened in London. Look at what's happened in Florida. Um, so I think children are exposed to tremendous amounts of violence, especially even on, through the media and TV now with the war zones um, that the kids are seeing or hearing about. So I felt that we, we did not have a tool. There are books out there on death and loss. But I think this is a different phenomenon. There's, there's significant trauma involved here. It can also be used for car accidents, and I think that's been <clears throat> occurring you know, pretty frequently in America. But, but I think there's this added layer of gun violence and terrorist attacks and wars that I think compelled me to say that we, we really need a tool, to, especially help the younger children who, yeah. 
we don't have the language um, to, to kind of explain death in general to them, let alone a traumatic death that they may have witnessed. So your book is like geared for children, what, ages, uh, nonverbal, kids who don't... Three to age, eight, three to eight. eight to, so to eight it can be used for younger kids, but it can also be used for slightly, you know, seven, eight-year-olds um, because it explains it in very simple language, which I think when we're trying to explain a, a trauma or a death, I think it's better to use kind of simple, basic, you know, words and images to convey the message to kids. So what makes the book unique? Let's say there, as you see, you kind of alluded to the fact there are some other books out there that help children deal with death and dying, etc. But yours specifically for this age category, let's say right. one to eight, why is it unique? Well, one, we don't have a book on traumatic death as in a sudden violent death. You know, I did a bunch of searches and I've been looking for a book, even just to guide me in my own writing, and I couldn't find one. I, I work a lot with trauma, and I work a lot with loss, and I, we, we don't have something specific for young children based on a traumatic death. So we have books on, you know, a pet dying or someone dying of an illness, um, but this is kind of unique, especially given our social, sociopolitical world right now. It's, it feels like a different phenomenon for kids. You know, kids are talking about terrorist attacks. We didn't have that. 10, 15 years ago. And so I as think a psychologist, what's the difference? Of a need, a current need. Given that, like what would be the difference emotionally or psychologically, let's say for, for a child when it's a sudden death as opposed to like an illness in the family and a parent dies or a sibling dies or even a friend is dying, but this is like immediate. This happened. This is a tragedy that, that's immediate, unexpected, What's the difference emotionally, let's say, for the children in terms of adapting or uh, to the to the loss? Mm-hmm. It's it's the comp- trauma component. So it's sudden, it's violent. There's tremendous amounts of helplessness and powerlessness. Uh, it's very graphic, and it this the it's it's overwhelming. Whereas you know, a, a dying of cancer or an illness, you know, there's a process there. And, and you can explain things over time to the child, and you can process it over time. So the kids who witnessed the London Bridge attack or who maybe who lost someone at the concert, um, that's, that's a sudden, unexpected, traumatic death. And the worry is that these kids then can become more anxious, can become more sad, um, can become overwhelmed. And they worry a lot. They may worry a lot. You often hear kids saying, can it happen to me? Can it happen in our neighborhood? Can it happen at our school? That's usually the children's response. So the book addresses the trauma, addresses the suddenness, but then helps the therapeutic questions at the end really try to address those pieces. How are you feeling at the time? How are you feeling now? What are some safe spaces you can go to? How can you cope with what's happened? What are some safe adults you can go to? So we want to help them overcome not just the loss, but also the traumatic experience. Because it almost sounds like what happens to soldiers in war, similar, even though perhaps they're even more prepared because they're going to war. But, you know, and then they come home and suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, a similar kind of thing with the kids. Um, but a second thing is, I think, and I don't know in your experience, uh, but that parents 
uh, and maybe even teachers or people who are associated with the children want to sweet, don't want to talk about it. They want to forget about it, or they tell the kids to forget about it. You're okay, and 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 uh, maybe particularly for parents because it becomes so difficult for the parents themselves to even talk about it, and then the kids are stuck with all these emotions that you're talking about and and no place to put them. I think that's accurate. I think even adults don't have the language or the tools necessary to explain these kind of phenomena to kids and help them cope. Um, you know, there was a, a couple of years ago, there was a high school shutdown because there was a potential um, gun attack of a student uh, who had threatened here in San Diego. And it borders on an elementary school. And the elementary school went into a gun lockdown. Nothing happened, thank goodness. But the day after, there was not there was no processing of what happened and why it happened and how can kids cope with it. So there's a way we want to just move on. So even the kids who are living in chronic violence, they are exposed to this very frequently. And I don't know if we have the mental health tools and interventions in schools, in Head Starts, in the ERs, where children are exposed to this repeatedly and may have PTSD from it, to help them understand it and cope with it and adapt. I think that's the, that's the piece where the grown-ups have to step up and say, we really need mental health tools and interventions to support these kids through these moments. So what you're saying, this book is appropriate not only for parents, not only for teachers uh, or educators, but mental health professionals, even law enforcement, emergency workers, pediatricians, all of these professionals. The frontline people. The frontline people. The frontline exactly. people, yeah. And is there any concerted effort for them to get this? I mean, your book is obviously one of the first. Uh, so, how do you get your your book, or have you gotten your book out there to these the, to the professionals that we that I just mentioned? You know, I just published it. I think a month or two ago. So, my goal is, you know, I started an Indiegogo generosity project, um, and that project, the goal is to raise money to distribute free copies to shelters, ERs, schools. Um, so that libraries, professionals like pediatricians and mental health counselors and social workers have the book for free if they can't afford to purchase it. It's only nine ninety nine. But if we raise enough funds, the goal is really to send out free copies to people. The other way that I'm hoping that people can help out, the community can help out, is you can go on Amazon and you can purchase the book and donate it to your community library. You can donate it <clears throat> to the shelter down the road from you to the school of your choice directly. So that, you know, I think it's a community effort. So I'm really trying to make, make it possible for everybody to be involved, even if some schools or Head Starts can't afford to buy this book or, or don't want to buy this book, we can provide the resource to them. You know, one of the things you also just mentioned a little bit earlier, it doesn't necessarily mean, well, let's take schools, for instance. Uh, there may not have been a terrorist attack in a, in a particular school or the child, the children may have not had to cope with the death, but they go through these exercises all the time. And I'm familiar with that with friends and colleagues who are teachers. And what's the impact of that? I mean, just being fearful that somebody's going to come and get them and, and perhaps kill them or their friends, because that's part of it, too, that they have to deal with even before something or maybe something actually never happens. But that's pretty scary stuff. It is. It is. And again, you know, you can look at the therapeutic questions at the back of the book and you can select those that would be appropriate for moments like this to kind of just process what would you, how do you feel about this? 
Um, what are your thoughts about this? How can we cope? What are the safe people you can go to if you're worried about this? So it's really a guide for teachers, mental health professionals, parents, um, frontline professionals to walk the child through anything related to this kind of death. So what would you do specifically, because you're you're covering, you're saying like, say, one to eight. Let's go through that. You know, as a social worker, I'd like to kind of get specific. Okay, a three-year-old or a four-year-old is going to be very different in terms of processing this than an eight-year-old, just in terms of their their language capability. So let's start. Like, what would you do with a, well, we'll take three or four, you pick, but a three-year-old or a four-year-old. How specifically would you use this book in terms of, specific coping mechanisms with a a three- or four-year-old? So with a three- or four-year-old, I usually have their caregiver in the room uh, with us. So a parent, a grandparent, whoever's bringing the child in, I would have them in the room with us. And we would start out probably sitting on the floor with some puppets and some toys and this book as well, sitting on the floor. And we would start out a general conversation of how school going and how things going, just very, very simple conversation. At some point in the beginning, like in the first 15 minutes, I would then introduce, oh, let's look at this book and shall we read it together? So I wouldn't go to the trauma. Let's say the child has witnessed um, a traumatic death. I wouldn't go straight to the trauma. You want to use displacement. You want to use play therapy. This book is all about displacement and play therapy for young kids. And then we would start reading the book and see what the child says or associates. Usually during the book, kids will say, oh, that happened to me or, oh, I know somebody where that happened to or I saw that. And then you start working from there. You go at the child's pace. You don't push the child. If the child is unable to go through the book, you you just put it away. You try next time or the next time. You you really have to go at what the child is ready to face, hear, or see. You also are guiding the, the, the adult in the room, the caregiver, on how to work with the child on this. So the child may not ask the questions in the room with you. The child may go home or to the grandparents' house and ask them the questions or bring up the book. And so if they have the book, they can start using it. It's a very simple book to use. They can just read through it. There are questions at the end. There's a guide in the beginning. So it's a process. It's not a one-time sit-down thing as in any kind of trauma or loss. Yeah, I think one thing children do, and also the parents, I know with my own kids, some of these questions, you know, you allow them, you know, given the pro- what you're talking about, you sort of open it all up, you open up the, the thought process to them, but they sit with it for a while, and then they'll ask you the question when you're driving them to soccer practice, <laughs> or they'll, in, in some maybe situation that you never expected the question, but you're then prepared if you've gone through this, um, because they don't always respond right away. And you, a parent, as you say, or the, whoever the caretaker is, needs to be prepared for that the child opening up. And any you know, not necessarily, let's say, in the therapeutic situation that you described. Correct, correct. So they may, you know, they may go to school the next day and ask their teacher about it. Um, or they may go to their coach, you know, their PE coach and say, you know, this happened. So I think all adults in situations like this should be prepared and exposed or at least send them on to the next person who can be prepared and exposed as well, you know, just to be mindful that this is happening and we can discuss this with children and we do give children permission and tools to address this and cope with these traumatic deaths. 
What do you do in a case where, let's say, you are doing that with your own child, they've been exposed to some kind of terrorist attack, um, a friend was killed, or they saw something happen, and they talk about it amongst themselves. You know, you listen to the kids playing, for instance, uh, maybe a little bit older, five or six-year-olds, and then the uh, and this can be a common situation, and then the parents of the other child gets upset or even angry. You know, your child is talking about, we don't want him or her to be talking about this. It will upset them. And they're talking about, they, you know, they witnessing the, 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 a friend getting killed. How do you deal with that? Well, uh, it would be around as I would with any other kind of loss or trauma or situation. So I would say to parents, as I often do, it's okay for kids to talk and ask questions. If you, if you hide things and stop kids from expressing themselves, you know, their imaginations are pretty significant. And what they can imagine is far worse than what the facts might be. So the more you allow your kids to process and can just sit back, even if you don't know how to respond, if you can just sit back and listen and validate, you're helping the kids. So I would, I would take that stance with the parent and I would try to explain the developmental process and the adaptive process and the therapeutic process. And if the parent is still uncomfortable, you know, that, then that's their choice. I would never force, you know, you can't force people to do X, Y, or Z. You can only recommend or suggest. Now, eight-year-olds are pretty sophisticated. I mean, as opposed to three-year-olds or even four-year-olds. So let's talk about uh, an eight-year-old, which is, is what, uh, third grade? Third grade, yes, third grade. Yeah, so third grade. Uh, how would you approach, with your book, How do you approach an eight-year-old? I would probably have the caregiver again in the room. Uh, We might not be sitting on the floor. We might be sitting on the sofa. We would begin again in a very general process. I might have some artwork out, like paper and markers and things where the kid could draw or doodle if they wanted to. Again, displacement. And then in the same way, the book would be lying out there, and I would suggest, do we want to take a look at this? And I would see their response. And if they're open to it, we would say, you know, shall we read it together? And I might have the caregiver read it to them, or I might be sitting on the sofa between them. And then we'd sort of read it together, and I would watch and listen carefully to the child's responses. So if they start asking questions, or if they start sharing, you know, I would just take the child's lead, whichever direction it goes in, and follow that lead. Um, the therapeutic questions at the back, you know, we can take them at a deep, to a deeper level. So we might not do puppet play to work it out. We might just do some drawings or storytelling to kind of reprocess what happened and what they witnessed and their feelings around it. So there, again, with the eight-year-old, we would still use displacement and play therapy, but a slightly deeper cognitive level with slightly, slightly more sophisticated language and understanding. But again, it would be an opportunity for the child to express their thoughts share their feelings, ask questions, and then hopefully learn what are some tools I can use to make myself feel safer and better. Do we have to wait till something actually happens? Or how do you feel about children being exposed to these kinds of traumatic deaths via like television or the internet and then to talk about it? Because as I said, you know, it may not happen to them, but it may happen to a friend of theirs. So should there be, in terms of, I don't don't know, you wouldn't call it early intervention. I'm not sure exactly what it is. But because this stuff does happen, that you sit watch television together, you let them, in the case of, say, eight-year-olds, watch the TV or see it on the net. Um, How do you, 
how do we deal? How do we cope with that? Those kinds of situations. Right. I, I think you know early intervention is prevention. Um, I, I completely believe that. I say that to all my families. I recommend kids not be watching TV and not having access to media independently, and that we screen some of this stuff because they are still very young, even though they're exposed to a lot through the movies and the news. The, if we can limit it, I think that's helpful. When, when kids watch something like this on TV or if it's happened to a friend and they start asking questions about it, again, I think to open that door and to step into it, step through it and say, okay, let's talk about this. What is this? What just happened? Why did it happen? And, oh, there's a book. Do you want to read about it? And we can use the book in that preventative way if the child is exposed asking questions. If kids are not exposed, which is obviously highly unlikely today, but if kids are not exposed, then I may not use the book because they, they're still protected from, from some of this. But, you know, we had, unfortunately, you know, we had a suicide shooting of an adolescent boy, again, at the same high school, which borders on the elementary school. But, but before even I knew about it, the kids knew about it and were texting about it and, and sharing information about it. And that's a moment when you think, gosh, you know, we, we really need to address this with these, uh, these, these third and fourth and fifth graders because they know about it, they're reading about it, and they're discussing it amongst themselves. Some adult needs to step in and guide them. And that's a moment when I would use this book. A month ago, maybe, we had a shooting at a community pool party in a very affluent neighborhood. Um, all the kids in the apartment complex knew about it. All of them heard it. Um, and again, that's a moment when I would use this book and say, look, let's work through this with the children. Let's pretend it's not happened or it's not going to happen again. These kids have been exposed to it in a very immediate way, um, and let's be realistic and process it with them. So, Dr. Maker, how sophisticated do you think parents are? How, how aware do you think parents today are aware? Like, I, I think that, uh, you know, this example you gave, I mean, the kids are texting. They know about it. They, of course, they know how to use social media. That's what they were born with. So uh, are parents, do you think, really kind of unaware of the children's ability to get this kind of information on their own? Do uh, How sophisticated do you think that parents are today? I think parents know that kids are accessing the information, but I think parents are not sure, or teachers are not sure what's the next step. Like, what do, what do we do with this now? And I think when, what, you, what you mentioned a little while ago, that shutdown is usually the automatic response. And what I'm suggesting is let's not shut it down. Kids are talking about it. Kids are witnessing this. Kids are exposed to this. Let's look at it together and let's support the kids through the process. Do you have to emphasize perhaps more uh, or there has to be more of awareness? What are the consequences of not talking about these kinds of traumatic death situations with our children? What are the consequences? Right, and the research shows that kids who have been exposed to kind of traumatic violence, you know, can develop PTSD, depression, anxiety, aggressive behavior, behavioral problems. So, you know, it depends. It's a continuum. I'm not saying everybody's going to develop this, but the more you are exposed to this or the more you're witnessing this, kids living in chronic violence, um, there's a higher, higher probability. And I think, I think, you know, if you look at the news, when these terrorist attacks happen, um, or when this violence happens, you always hear about the adults. You always see the adults 
the kids are invisible in the media. The kids have been exposed. Even when you hear about the, heard about the London Bridge attacks, you, you, you never heard about the younger kids who are part of this process or the Florida attacks, you know, who may have lost siblings or a teacher or a parent. It's, the kids are invisible in this. And I do agree with you that we need to raise awareness that the kids are part of this process. Kids are being exposed to this as well. Why do you think that is? Why do you think the kids are invisible in the media? Does that come from an all-all sort of cultural kind of thing that we don't want to expose our kids or we don't want to even reference the fact that they were um, exposed to this kind of terrorism? I mean, where does that come from? Why are they invisible? Right, and I, and I think it's, it's going to trickle down. Um, you know, mental health is always focused on adults. Um, in, historically, it's always been about adults and adult processing and adult development. Even if you look at all the medications that are being developed, they first develop them for adults. And we still don't have research on the side effects of medications on young children, like for ADHD, which one out of I don't know how many, pretty, pretty high ratio are on ADHD meds. But if you look at the research, there's very it's limited research on kids and the long-term benefits and side effects. So I think mental health has been more biased towards adults um, over time. In terms of the media, I don't know if they have, you know, we, we get a lot of professionals on shows who are adult-focused. I haven't seen that many professionals on, I don't watch a lot of TV, but I haven't seen a lot of professionals come in who are child specialists. You know, whether it's I would agree with you, and I have to say, I do watch a lot of TV. I watch a lot of the, you know, interview shows, et cetera, and you're right. You don't see that. It always has to do with adults. Very seldom do they talk about children, except in cases like we mentioned at the beginning of the show, you know, dealing with a sick parent or a, uh, or right. a sibling, but, but, but nothing like this. It's a new phenomenon. I mean, 20 years ago, uh, kids, it was a big deal to help your kids cope with the loss of if their pet died or their dog died. And Correct. right, I mean that, and, and it wasn't. And I say twenty years ago, but I, I think that's true. Yeah, you know, I called um, KPBS and I said, you know, why don't we have a parenting show, and and, and on TV or on the radio, a- any kind of parenting show that's parenting and mental health. And the director was very kind. He spoke to me for about thirty minutes, and he said, you know, people are drawn to entertainment. <laughs> He said, your parenting show is not going to be very entertaining. <laughs> so I said, but it's informative. It's, it's a guide. Uh, but, you know, I, I just think we need, we need a channel on TV. We need a radio channel on parenting and maybe parenting and mental health. I would agree. Well, you know, books, though, on parenting, let's say, you know, how to parent. Now, those sell, but you're right. TV is like entertaining. We want to have fun. We don't want we, we and that's not fun to be talking about that. But actually, parenting books are are popular books, Correct. Correct. not the visual, yeah. not yeah. But uh, I you think, know, but uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people also don't buy those books. You know, and don't read through all of them. It it takes time. It takes effort. A lot of the books are pretty dense. Um, so I'm not sure if if the the entire population has access, you know, to that well, resource uh, yeah. as a tool. Well, I think, obviously, with your book, and I, I would keep pushing it, really, I, I think that's a great idea, the, the parenting show. Um, 
we have about a minute left. So talk to us about where we can we can get the book. I assume bookstores anywhere, everywhere, Amazon.com, and website that we can go to to get more information about the book, about what you're doing, uh, about purchasing the book or donating the book. Uh, just mention that again. So my website is aspiringfamilies.com. If you go to aspiringfamilies.com, you will see the book right there, Where Did My Friend Go? You can click on it. You can read about it. You can purchase it from Amazon. You can also go to the Indiegogo Generosity website, and you can donate money there if you want to help out. Um, So it's pretty easily accessible um, to the community. And there are also resources and tips and tools on my website for parenting. Dr. Esmira Maker. Thank you so much for being on the show. Very informative. Where did my friends go? Helping children cope with a traumatic death. Great to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me is Cheryl Crowder, uh, author of Surviving the Storm, a workbook for telling your cancer story. 
cancer treatments have become so successful that the number of cancer survivors will reach an estimated 20 million in the United States by 2026, and this is according to the American Cancer Society. Yet, while the rate of survivorship increases, so does the need for help in dealing with the trauma after cancer. Helping survivors find a way through the wreckage of cancer, psychotherapist Cheryl Crowder reaffirms that one big step towards recovery is for survivors to speak up and be heard about cancer and how it has touched their lives. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Cheryl. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's really a pleasure to be here this morning. Yeah, well, your book is, uh, I mean, the, what an estimated 20 million in the United States uh, will have, can, there'll be cancer su- survivors. That That's a lot of cancer survivors, and I guess we really haven't dealt with the issues of surviving cancer. We always talk about the medical stuff, but the emotional Mm -hmm. trauma is sort of, is buried, I guess you would say. So let's, I mean, your book, Surviving the Storm, a workbook for telling your cancer story. How do you tell your cancer story? Well, uh, that was one of the reasons that uh, prompted me to write this book. I myself am a cancer survivor, and uh, the numbers are growing, which is the good news because uh, the early detection is happening, the education the treatments are getting better. They're targeting different types of cancer and finding uh, out so much more about how to treat this disease. It's a very pesky disease. So um, in, the, in the old days, people didn't survive as much, and now they're surviving. And also the whole generation of those of us that are baby boomers, where that's a whole group that cancer can, can uh, hit later in life, of course, we're flooding the mar- market called the sil- silver tsunami. So... This is a whole group and a whole area that really wasn't on the radar before. So what I found after I had cancer is I began looking around after the treatment was over. It, 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 the experience is sort of like you fall off a cliff and, hey, where'd everybody go? And, and uh, the feeling of being lost. There's a lot of uncertainties and fears and the traumas. And after a while, I, 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 I actually found somebody to talk to who was uh, knew about cancer, and so I processed it. But then... I chose to continue to work in, in cancer and became part of a survivorship uh, committee at a hospital locally and some of the centers and worked in the communities. And what I noticed is that at workshops or, or conferences, groups, people were bursting at the seams just to talk about what had happened to them, and there was really no place for them to do it. So I decided to uh, create a book that is a workbook structure. It's very narrative in its, in its uh, orientation, which gives people a chance, gives prompts, gives people a chance to be able to write out their stories. And then if they want to, some people want to, some people don't speak it out, to voice those stories. So that's really how it, it came about. I think that uh, well, processing trauma uh, is sometimes you just need to talk about it, talk about it, talk about it, until you're done talking about it. <laughs> I, and I also want to, I just want to quote you because I have a quote here from you, which I think is like, it's sort of really struck me. You, you said, I went from feeling fine to being in pain. I went from feeling fine, even though you were diagnosed mm-hmm. with cancer, and I wanted to know what kind right. it was. I'll ask you that afterwards. But I went from feeling fine to being in pain, horribly nauseated from chemo drugs, burned by radiation. I watched my long curls fall into the tub drain, my mouth filled with sores, my eyes turned red. Too bad it wasn't Halloween. I was the perfect zombie. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. 
Unfortunately, my friends and, and, and family and colleagues who have been diagnosed with cancer, uh, this kind of just, you know, really resonated, I guess, this quote. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, nobody wants to talk about that. What kind of cancer did you have? Or do you- I, had, uh, I had a very aggressive breast cancer called triple negative breast cancer. And uh, between, the time, between the time it was diagnosed and the time I had surgery, it had already, I called, jumped the fire line into my lymph nodes. So it was metastatic by that time. Is that the, that's what Joan London has been diagnosed with? Uh, I, I, I'm not sure about Joan London. Robin Roberts was diagnosed oh. with triple negative breast cancer. Um, yeah. I think Christina Applegate had triple negative. It's, uh, I, I was a bit of an outlier, as I've sort of been all my life. Because it's often found in younger women, and it's very virulent in, in younger women. It's also found in uh, African-American women, uh, and oftentimes Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi Jews. And so these are, the, these are the main areas that oftentimes this particular cancer hits. Um, this is the one that um, oftentimes people have that, that BRAC, BRAC gene. Uh, so that was uh, another factor I fortunately tested negatively for that gene. But it is a cancer that uh, now they're discovering many other genetic factors are, are part of this kind of cancer. So, so it was a double, uh, not more than a double whammy, but it sounds like you didn't fit any of these categories, either in terms of age or ethnicity. Um, right, right. Yeah. So it, and, it was very, yeah. uh, very, very sort of came totally out of left field, like, wait a minute, this, this is not me. And I think a lot of people feel this way. It's like, this is the wrong chart. This is not me. You have the wrong chart. <laughs> yeah. Check the tests again because those are not my tests. That's not my blood work. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things, um, and I was thinking about it in terms of your book, sometimes there are just two responses, or at least many times I've seen this, where it either um, professionally or just in terms of friends, but you see people, they're diagnosed, they have cancer, they go through the treatment, and then they don't want to talk about it anymore, or no one wants to talk about it with them, mm-hmm. or the opposite. They they become involved in support groups, and their whole, perhaps, mission in life has to do with cancer and raising mm-hmm. money. Or, uh, so there's... I kind of see the either or, and then those who are, I mean, I have a close friend who just doesn't want to be associated with her diagnosis. Mm -hmm, So, mm -hmm, yeah, yeah, those are some of the reactions, but you do kind of see this, I see anyway, kind of this black and white response. I don't know if, if how that fits into it, but um, that is one coping mechanism that many women I know have. They just, I don't want to talk about it. Right, right. And, you know, I, I think it's really important to honor where people are. And if people feel like they want to move on, they don't want to talk about it, they're done, uh, you know, that's, that's certainly up to them. And if that works for them, I think that's fine. Uh, and then I think, right, you're, you're right, the other end of the spectrum can be people who can perhaps over-identify, uh, like I am the cancer. And, and this group can often struggle a lot to not identify with the diagnosis I mean, I really feel strongly about that, you know, you're not your diagnosis. You're not a statistic. Yes, this is uh, an impactful disease that will change your life forever, regardless of how you decide you want to deal with it, cope with it, process it. It it is life-changing. So that's really up to the individual to decide how they want to, you know, how they want to play that, how they want to travel down that road. Um, But I, I think, yeah, those two, those two, 
um, you know, the black and white, as you've called, either completely walking away or over-identifying. And sometimes those, those folks can have a little problem moving on as, uh, as clearly, I think. Yeah, and the other thing is, I think you deal, in, in line with this, you, in your book, you deal specifically with, and I think this is the thing that looms over this disease, dealing with the uncertainty. It's really difficult mm-hmm just in general, to deal with uncertainty. But if you're right. dealing with uncertainty, life and death, is it going to come back? I'm in remission, but, you know, who knows if and when or ever. Right. This is something that you, yeah, let's talk about that because, I mean, I think that's one of the key issues, dealing with this uncertainty of a cancer diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, they give people these, uh, what they call distress screening forms, and there's this ti- there's these, there are these tiny little boxes. All, all my life I've resisted tiny little boxes. <laughs> it's sort of my, <laughs> my MO, because, you know, you can't really fit a lot of what's going on in a tiny little box. But they give it these tiny little boxes, and people check, you know, am I afraid of this, or how am I feeling? And when they, when they uh, you know, do these statistics, the number one concern of cancer survivors, the number one is living with uncertainty. And that, that struck me a great deal because I've uh, practiced existential humanistic psychotherapy for close to 40 years. And, of course, that is part of the existential aspect of life, that life is uncertain. We don't have guarantees. You know, we're, we're, we don't come in with a guarantee. And uh, all of us are living with uncertainty. However, when a, when a life-threatening diagnosis comes in and, and you know, turns, spins you around, it becomes very, very real because at this point, it's not a theory. It's not some idea. It's like, whoa, I really am living with uncertainty. You're right. Like, is it going to come back? How am I going to be? What's going to happen to me? So I felt that the kind of work that I had done for all these years with people and the depth work that I do was, in, was applicable to cancer survivorship. Why not take all that way of looking at things, processing things, finding and discovering and exploring where you are, how to learn to accept the reality of living with uncertainty, the contingencies of life as you continue on from cancer, I thought that was a a good match. And I have found it in working with people, both with myself, but also with the others, that that has been something that really helps people move through and then move on. I know it depends on the person, but can you mm-hmm. like give us a, give us an example? Let's take. I mean, you've worked with a lot of people, and mm-hmm. obviously dealt with this in your own life. But mm-hmm. what? How long does it take? Or I mean, it depends. Let's say you know, from say diagnose. I mean, is there a time frame, or right. is there one? Should we have some kind of a time frame from diagnosis and being able to live with the uncertainty? I, I suppose it depends on each person's unique mental health. But um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, is there... Well, yeah, yes, certainly. I mean, it, it does depend on each individual person. And cancer survivors, uh, unlike other medical uh, illnesses that people have been had to struggle with or diagnosis, often feel a great deal of pressure that they should move on. Uh, they should find this to be a gift. They should find the meaning, and they should, come on, get over it, uh, and find, in quotes, the gift of cancer pretty quickly. So the first thing I like to do with people is to take off that pressure of you're supposed to somehow get through this in a prescribed amount of time, that seems to relieve people a great deal and help them. However, I don't find that beginning to work with survivorship from diagnosis is very practical. Uh, 
oftentimes the medical profession defines the moment of survivorship as the moment you're diagnosed, which to me has never made any sense. What makes sense to me is that you you finish people finish treatment or they're living with cancer, which is a whole other group. I mean, some people continue on with treatment, and they will for the rest of their lives. And this is the group that then moves into the uncertainty, sometimes feeling like, hey, where are the resources? Or, you're right, like nobody really wants to talk to me anymore. What I have found in working with people is that if I start to work with somebody, either they're, maybe they have maybe one treatment left, or they finish treatment, and we work, and Again, this is generic, and I agree, like we can't be totally generic, but it seems to be that if, if I work with somebody for that, for a year, from, the, from when they are just finishing uh, or, when, or when they have finished, there's a way that processing deeply through that year, people move through, and then at the end of that year, I had one woman, and she had a, a long history of other illnesses and she really struggled. She had a terrible cancer, all kinds of botched things went on with it. When she first came to me, she was uh, on, her, on her last treatment, and she was feeling as though there was really no hope. There's no need. She can't plan anything. She can't do anything because she's going to die anyway. And we worked with that, and basically I said to her, well, you know, here you are now. You're still alive now, and let's just move from there. And at the end of the year... We started seeing each other every other week and then finally said, you know, I've, I've got too many things to do. I, I, I feel like I, I am going to be alive. I am going to go on with my life. And now I'm going to do that. And thank you very much. It's been a good therapy. And that to me is a great success. That's a success. That's a, that's a good story. That's a, that's a yeah. good ending. Um, another thing, though, I was thinking about patients and, and uh, another friend of mine who you sort of alluded to this, people who they don't have the, just finished their treatment and that they're done with it, but that they are constantly having treatment and sort of living or living with cancer as a, yeah, as a chronic condition. And the time mm-hmm. spent uh, that she spends in the hospital, that, that, mm-hmm. that you'd rather be doing something else. And I don't think people are aware of that or the time spent, you know, well, just start with that, you know, having to go to the doctor or if she goes yeah. on vacation... Yeah. All those kinds of things, logistics of it, that you just don't want to deal with. Can, can we talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. It, it's such an important group, the group that is living with cancer. And I have uh, a number of people who, that is what, you know, the category they're in. And honestly, sometimes they feel, they feel ill all the time because of chemotherapy. And that's very difficult. Some of the very sad, they're very young people, and they watch as they are going in to the infusion rooms, to the appointments, doing all these things. Meanwhile, their friends are going on with their lives. They're having kids or they're going to college. Um, you know, they're having barbecues, and these people may want to go, but it's like, oh, I just don't feel well enough. And it's really difficult with this group because, again, this whole identity as a cancer patient gets very confusing to, to walk with because oftentimes if they're really ill and having to do a lot of treatments, that is it. That is their week. That's what they're doing. And so I, I understand what you're saying. For that group, what I try and do is emphasize like, well, just to call it really, it's like, you know, that, yeah, this is not how you wanted life. Uh, just to name that straight up. And, but in this, 
okay, this is your life now, and how can we find ways that you can engage? It might not look like how it used to. I, I, we, can't, we don't go back. There's no, there's no you know, <laughs> the river's not going to flow backwards here. We, we, we're present, and now everything just keeps going. And so to help that group find ways to engage in their lives in meaningful ways, and by meaningful ways, I'm not meaning that as a capital, like meaningful, like you don't have to create a foundation or write a book, but daily, daily aspects of your life that you feel connected as a, as a person, as a human being, not just a cancer patient, that's how I feel is important to help people in, in this really difficult space that you're talking about. Yeah. Would you say you, you could do, like, it's sort of like you can maybe do different things, but maybe you can do some of the same things, but you have to acknowledge that you have to do them in a different way? Um, yeah, I think on a, on a good day, yeah. Like, for instance, um, as someone who has, who has young children, and, uh, you know, which is always, I think, very sad, um, and she is now, uh, after about a year and a half, now more able. Now she can go on a field trip. That couldn't happen for a while. Uh, now she can uh, end up, uh, you know, taking the kid down to the preschool and be a part of it. And so she can plan things on certain days, like plan her treatment on certain days so that she can then go and do things with her children that's one of the ways that I think is very important. You can adjust your life. You know, I can't be here totally, but I can be here in these ways. Would you describe that as, I mean, I think you use this term in the, in the book, but normalizing the challenges that a cancer survivor faces? Right, right. Um, it, yeah, part, yeah, it's part of life. I always, in normalizing and, and the new normal, which is a big term in the cancer world, I always struggle with because... After years of working in the field, and you may relate to this, I, 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 normal is a, is a concept that I, I really have no idea what people are talking about anymore, what normal is. But I, I think it's important to, uh, yeah, to normalize that this, this is part of life and to help other people. For instance, uh, friends, of, friends of, of people with cancer, partners, family members, and I do include that group in this book as survivors because I think it's a group that's often very forgotten and neglected. And these people often are acting as caregivers as, as, as well as they're being the parents, as well as they're working. And rarely do they get asked, hey, how are you doing? You know, what's happening for you? Mostly they get like, okay, here's the next plan that you have to do to take care of this person. And, and these people often feel quite lost, they feel isolated, and there can be a lot of guilt that they feel because, oh, you know, how can I possibly uh, talk about my needs or I'm mad, I'm mad or all these, these emotions and these experiences get stuffed a lot for, uh, again, as I call them, the other survivors, uh, yeah. people that walk alongside the cancer, person with cancer. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that's, I agree with you, and I think that obviously that's key to be able to respond and respect the feelings of all the other significant people and the person who has cancer's yeah. life. I think one of the other things that I, even as a social worker, have difficulty when I have close friends or family who have uh, are living with cancer, I don't know how much to sometimes ask how are you mm. feeling? Or I, I don't want to mm-hmm. keep saying in our relation, you know, I'm texting my friend and, well, how are you feeling today? I mean, I don't think she wants to hear that from me all the time. But at the other side, I want to say, well, you know, I'm aware that you're going through this, kind of getting that balance between let's talk about just your our normal stuff, but also I am concerned about you and what you're going through in terms of your cancer. And that's 
that's difficult for those yes, friends. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think a simple how are you, which you would say to your friend anyway, right? Like you would yeah. say to a good friend, hey, how are you? Um, I think that's in, in terms of normalizing it. That's a part of it. And I also suggest to people that you can always ask the person. I think people are afraid oftentimes to ask, hey, how much do you want me to ask? Uh, it, it, let me know. Uh, mostly, though, I feel like people with cancer, particularly in the survivorship phase and particularly as time goes on, you know, hopefully the months and the years, hopefully a long period of time, a lot of the symptoms, physical symptoms are still there, collab, collab, collateral damage, as I call it, uh, emotional concerns still show up. And I feel like mostly people who've had cancer, who are survivors or who are living with cancer, really like to be asked because it doesn't happen a lot. And they know, you know, you kind of know when it's sincere, when someone really wants to know. And for someone that perhaps hasn't been asked in, in a, quite a while and is still carrying feelings, I think it's usually a good thing to just ask. People can always just say no, right? You know, they can do that. Yeah, they're not going to fall apart by your asking the question. <laughs> or, In fact, I think the opposite. Yeah, exactly. Ex- uh, yes, yeah, so the opposite. We only, we have a few minutes left, but I so I want to be sure that maybe uh, I mean I've asked you the certain questions, but did we cover some of the other questions that are kind of raised by whatever parents? teachers, family members, some of the other things that you covered in the book, like what other kinds of questions do are raised by the significant others in the, in the person who's surviving cancer's life? Well, gosh, you know, there, there's so many different uh, questions. I, I, I guess it's interesting what occurs to me, uh, because I think it's a very important group, um, is to make sure that people realize that there are different levels of sur- different groups of survivorship. For instance, uh, a growing group, and thank goodness it's a growing group, are people who are young and surviving cancer. Uh, the downside of that is that people who are young are getting cancer, and I'm, I'm very glad that people are researching because what is up with this, that so many young women, <clears throat> you know, 20s, 30s, uh, are, are getting these horrible cancers. Kids are getting it. And uh, so young survivors... Uh, pediatric survivors, it's really important to be sure that we, we treat these people differently than, say, for instance, someone in their 50s or 60s or 70s. They're not the same group. So that's part of the intention of, of has always been the intention of my work, again, the humanistic work, is that we look at each, each person as a unique, authentic individual. And whether or not they're 14, 23, 42, 62 is that always that uniqueness, that authenticity of who you are as a person be highlighted. I think for me, that's, that's a big intention of this book. Also, what's been my intention is to reach people <clears throat> who perhaps don't have the resources. Um, my image of this book has always been a pair of hands holding this book and that they're helped from it. I wanted to be sure that people who... Perhaps they don't feel like going to a group. That's not who they are. They're, they're, they're live in an isolated area. They have no resources. There's no one to talk to. That this be uh, a venue for them, something to hold on to and something to process. Whatever is very important is happening for them. Well, I'll say I think you have, we have one minute left. You have 
achieve that in this book, Surviving the Storm, a workbook for telling your cancer story. And we've been talking to Cheryl Crowder. Um, You can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere, 30 Seconds website we can go to. Um, It's been great talking to you today. Thank you so much, Catherine. I really appreciate the conversation. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.